0: Father, I, I, and I think everyone in here, we, we love your word, and it just tells us about you. It tells us about us. It tells us about the fallenness of mankind. It tells us about the glory which you have and what awaits us if we submit to you. With that information, Lord, I pray that we would be able to recite it, recite it back clearly or lucidly to those who are inquiring and as we do so Lord help us to always be praying for opportunities and wisdom but this morning most of all Father we wish to honor you we honor you because you are a merciful God and Jesus is our merciful high priest and you loved us so much that you thought it was worth it to create the world and even though it would fall And many would be lost. We know that you wanted a people for yourself. And so you sent your son to die. Lord, we don't understand all of this. But we know the basics. Our mind can comprehend it. We would ask that you would help us to. Just dredge up the depths. Of your knowledge and your love. As we go through your word here. Bring to us great understanding. In Jesus name. Amen. So we left off, we got to verse 22, the next chapter 2, and I'm just going to pick it up there, there, to verse 24. It says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, Put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. so Last week, we covered the fact that Jesus was a miracle worker, signs, wonders, and miracles in verse twenty two is what he did that God the Father wanted done so it would attest to the fact that Jesus was speaking for God the Father because Jesus always points to God the Father and God the Father honors the Son and the Holy Spirit always points to Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus for us on this earth and he's the one that guides and directs the church here. Then it was also foreordained. It was the Father's plan to have Jesus go to the cross and suffer a brutal death by crucifixion. Now, I don't know the conversation that the father had with the son on this and when he knew it and it, did he always know it. I, I don't know all of those details. But at some point, Jesus realized he was going to come to earth, become incarnate, a little baby, and grow up a full human being, which he is still a, few, a, a full human being today. He's fully God and fully man. The idea in theology it's called the hypostatic union or hypostasis where you're fully both fully god and fully man and they're not mixed together and how that takes place we don't understand but jesus knew he was going to come to earth to do this to be the sacrifice it was foreordained just like your life is foreordained acts book of acts says particular city particular time particular place, particular people. That's the inference from the passages there in the book of Acts that you might hear the gospel, comprehend it, apprehend it, make it your own and be saved and go to heaven. And that's God's plan. And for everybody on earth, there is a plan that they get to understand who God is. First by Creations, Romans chapter 1, and that's called general revelation. And then if you want to seek after God, then comes a special revelation that God will reveal himself to you if you're seeking after him. This is a promise for those in the world. So it was God's foreordained plan. And we know that this goes back. To the book of Genesis before Jesus was ever born and in the book of Psalm this plan was given to us and it was given to us in somewhat of a cryptic uh, form. What I mean by that in Genesis chapter 3 it talks about Satan and the Savior Jesus Christ and again it's cryptic you can't really understand it back when Genesis is given but looking back from the New Testament to the Old Testament you can understand it and it reads in verse 15 chapter 3. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What that refers to is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He will be killed, but he will not remain dead. He will rise from the dead, but Satan is going to be utterly crushed. So this is the first inkling that we get that there's going to be a battle between Satan and his hordes and his minions and Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to win. He's going to win the battle. This is also telescope for us in Psalm chapter 22. If you're not familiar with this particular psalm, and King David wrote it, he was a prophet. See if you recognize this from the New Testament. And this is in the Old Testament. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? In verse 7 it says, All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. Verse 12 through 18 says... Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. That would refer to crucifixion. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is dried up. And by the way, when he says his heart has turned to wax... That is where the pericardium fills with fluid. You know, Jesus was uh, struck in the lower ribcage and outflowed blood and water in it because he had a heart condition on the cross. That's what was going on. And it says in verse 15, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me, a band of evil men has encircled me. And that would have been the Romans they have pierced my hands and my feet i count all of my bones people stare and gloat over me they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing and so this was a prophecy concerning the crucifixion of jesus christ giving thousands of years before and yet Here's Jesus fulfilling these things in the first verse. My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus said on the cross. So the Jews at the time would have recognized that he was quoting Psalm 22. And that had significance, especially with the signs, wonders, and miracles. They should have understood, and I think many did, that that was the Messiah. They just didn't want it. They said, no, absolutely not. You know, this last week I was going through Jeremiah, Lamentations, part of Isaiah, and Ezekiel. I listened to it, uh, and I go through the Bible on audio. And it got to one part in Jeremiah towards the end. I I think it was chapter 42. I'm, I'm not quite sure. But after everything had happened, Nebuchadnezzar had come in, and he had taken over Israel, destroyed everything there. There was a remnant left behind. And that remnant who was left behind came to Jeremiah. And they said, we want to do whatever the Lord wants us to do. Will you please inquire of the Lord what he wants of us and where he wants us to go? Does he want us to stay here in Israel and be the remnant? Or does he want us to go elsewhere? And he, he, they said to Jeremiah, whatever the Lord says, that's what we'll do. So Jeremiah goes away for 10 days. He comes back and he goes well you need to settle in this land you need to be the remnant and this is a time of testing for the nation of israel and the lord will bless you and you will be fine but if you go to egypt you will be killed by the sword and once these people heard this and of course i'm condensing all this down once the people heard this they turned to Jeremiah and said you're a liar because Jeremiah had gone on to tell him but you're not going to do that you're not going to stay here you're going to go down to Egypt and you know what your fate's going to be but you're going to do it so you liar because they wanted to go to Egypt and so they went to Egypt and you can only imagine what happened to them after that and they would not listen To God's word. They would not listen to God's prophet. And Jeremiah was right the whole time saying that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and this place is going to be destroyed. And they had other prophets saying, no prosperity awaits us. And Jeremiah said, ain't no way, no how technical language there. That's, that's what he told them. And, and they would not listen. Their hearts were so hard. They were so stubborn and they would not cease in their own beliefs and their own desires. And, and so the wicked men, it talks about in verse 23, Peter condemned the Jews who were assisting in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And the people he was really referring to there were the leaders of the Jews. Now, Annas and Caiaphas, those were two high priest at the time. Annas was deposed by the Roman government. They didn't want him in the position of high priest. And so his son-in-law Caiaphas was installed. And both of them were lackeys of the Roman government and they just thought that Jesus needed to die and that's what they were going to do. And they were wicked men. They plotted to do this. And I think that they knew what the scripture says. I'll bet there were some people in the Sanhedrin, the priestly caste that were saying, you know, he's doing all these things in the Old Testament. And for them it would have been the book of the law they would have said look he's doing this this is what the scripture says he is witnessing to the word and he is a true and faithful witness i'm sure now that's bill's version of what history happened you know but i'm sure that's that's what they said and then the high priest said no it's not going to happen and they're going to be condemned for it we will be there to see the judgment on these individuals We will know how they end up. Now, when it gets to this point of God planning the crucifixion, God the Father planning the crucifixion of Jesus, why did it have to be Jesus? Now, this is, I'm going to give it to you in theological terms, but kind of in a story form. Why couldn't it have been somebody else? Why couldn't have somebody come forward and made a sacrifice for our sins. After all, the entire Old Testament is set up for that purpose, to make atonement, and atonement is a covering for our sin. Well, first, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. We hold that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God. I believe in the Trinity. I will never believe anything else. Churches that do not believe that are simply cults. That's one of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. If they don't believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all being God, but all having a a separate personality, then they are a cult. Now, the first sacrifice that was ever made was made in the book of Genesis. If you recall, Adam and Eve were told by God, you can eat of any tree in the garden and all of them look good. They all had fruit that they bore in their season and they could eat of that. And God says, there's just one thing you cannot do here. Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat of that tree. And of course, we know that Eve was deceived. She took a bite, gave it to her husband. He took a bite and they fell. And all of a sudden they go, we're naked. And they didn't know exactly what to do. And they started hiding. And they go, look, fig leaves. The leaves are big. And they sewed them together. And they covered their nakedness. Atoned, so to speak, their nakedness in their physical body. Jesus shows up. He says, where are you? And, of course, the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I ate. And then Adam, or Adam was first. What happened? You know, what went on here? The woman, Lord, that you gave me. It was the woman. And the woman said it was a serpent. And the serpent hissed. You know, he, he's the one that just didn't say anything, but a curse came on him that he was going to crawl on the dust of the ground all the days that he existed. And the woman, she's going to have a heavy labor and childbirth, lots of pain and expectation, fearful expectation. And the man, by the sweat of his brow, he will make the land produce. Their sin was still not forgiven. And With this, it's the idea well, what do they do? And God told them, and in the day that you eat thereof, King James, you shall surely die. They didn't die physically, but they did die spiritually. They no longer had communion with God, where previously they did. So, how does a righteous God rectify this? Because he is a just God, and for every sin, I need to digress a little bit God has given them a command not to eat and they violated that and that's called sin so anything that God says we are to do we're supposed to do and anything that we're not supposed to do we're supposed to avoid now this idea of sin if you know what an archer is I think all of you do Uh, archer takes arrows and he aims for the target and he hits the bullseye if he misses the bullseye That's called sin, missing the mark. Adam and Eve missed the mark. They didn't do what God asked them to do. And God is the one who declares what sin is. He sets the standard for everything right and wrong. And when God said not to eat of the fruit, Adam and Eve missed the target. Now, every violation, no matter how big or how small, must be judged by God. I remember my parents specifically my mom, telling us once. My dad couldn't make it to something, and we had to show up. And I think it was for piano lessons, actually. And my dad couldn't be there, and my mom said, we're going to tell a little white lie. And I said, white lie? What's a white lie? And we're just going to tell them that he couldn't make it for whatever reason she gave. Now, a white lie, there's no such thing. It's like, that's a pure lie. As opposed to a black lie. You know, which, which one? There's no difference in the eyes of God. You can't tell... Also, embellishment. Embellishment is a lie. When you embellish, you make things seem more grandiose or just more flavorful and you put more descriptive adjectives in there than actually what took place, right? You use hyperbole. That's what embellishment is. And God... Believes, and I think it is true, embellishment is a lie. You don't go beyond what actually happened. Now, some people are good storytellers and they don't embellish, and then there's some that do embellish, and it's just a flat-out lie. And so every lie, every sin, every violation of God's command, no matter what, Big, small, sideways, square, round. It doesn't matter. God must judge it because he is righteous. He is pure. He is holy. He is just and he must judge every single sin that is out there. And so how does this happen if God always judges sin? And according to the scriptures, we know this that there is no forgiveness of sin or remission of sin or atonement for sin unless blood is shed. And we know from the Old Testament that the life of a thing is in its blood. And so blood has to be spilled in order to have forgiveness of sin. Now you might ask, why? Why is it like that? I don't know. I'm honest I I just don't know why it is like that but how does this get solved well first we know God is a God of love he's a God of mercy he's a God of forgiveness all of those things and he's absolute in that he's all forgiving he's all merciful he's all love how do you reconcile that with all just because he has to judge the sin but he is going to be loving merciful and forgiving as well. How do you put those things together? Well, in light of this, God can judge the sin of Adam and Eve, condemn them and yet turn around and forgive them when his justice must be satisfied. How does this take place? We know that from Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22, there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And in creation, like I said, all life is contained in the blood of the animal or the human being. Even though Adam and Eve had fashioned clothing from fig leaves and it covered their nakedness, there was no covering for sin, only for their nakedness. There was no forgiveness of the sin of disobeying God because they ate of the fruit. So God, who's a loving God, who knew this was going to happen, he had a plan. Now, Jesus made the sacrifice in Genesis chapter 3. And the sacrifice he made, he had to kill an animal or animals because it says he clothed them with skin. And that word for skin in the Hebrew is a leather type garment. It's the skin of an animal. And to do this, the blood of the animal had to be spilled. Now, as we get later into the text of scripture, we know that these animals were killed. Their blood was sprinkled on the horns of the altar. And once a year, at least on the Ark of the Covenant, which had the mercy seat, which was no seat at all. It was just in the middle of the two cherubim on top of the lid of the, uh, in the Holy of Holies or the Ark of the Covenant. That's what took place. And so with that blood, there was a covering that took place the covering that came from the sacrifice of the animal's blood but it could never take away the sin there's still the guilt of the sin which is there and hebrews 10 verse 4 says because it is impossible for blood of bulls and goats to take away sin so we know scripture says you can't remove the sin with the blood of the animals but it did provide a covering a temporary appeasement God could look at the people and say, okay, I'm not going to judge you yet, and I'm going to work with you. Prior to that, if there was no sacrifice, they're under the wrath of God. And by the way, the whole world is under the wrath of God. Now, when it comes to Adam and Eve, they sinned, but how did the sin get to us? Well, it's called the original sin. Because they fell in their nature, everything was corrupted in them. The world was corrupted. The universe was corrupted. Everything that is in it has been corrupted. We are corrupted. We cannot approach God and say, will you forgive me of my sin? We can't do it. We have to have somebody that stands in between. Now, another concept with this is guilt. When a child is born, that innocent little baby is guilty. Guilty. And some people say, well, if I lived a life and committed no sin, then I'd be able to go to heaven. And that's not true because even the little baby has a sin nature. That nature is not pure. And my own little grandchildren, my grandsons, you know... They do things on a semi-regular basis, and Patty would know this more than I would. Uh, I I did walk into the room, the kitchen the other day, and I heard uh, the oldest little grandson, he said, no. And I'm going, oh, what's going on? Let me go check this out. He was telling Grammy no. And Grammy goes, that's not the right response, you know, to to him. Uh, And and I saw this little video of a kid. He was just, he looked like he was about two and a half years old. And the mom is recording this, and the little child walks up, and he just has this scowl on his face. I'm going, "What's going on with this?" And she hands him a ladle, you know, like a soup ladle, and so he grabs it and he turns around, and he starts walking into the other, he 's kind of waddling still, walks into the other room, and it looks like he has a younger sister, walks right up to her and bops her on the head, just and you're going. Where did that come from, that he would have that sour? It's sin. Sin is on the inside. You don't have to teach a child to be bad. You don't have to teach adults to be bad. You have to teach them how to be good because we have a fallen nature. The people that say, oh, children are sinless. They're so pure. I'm sorry you have been deceived by the deceiver out there children are sinners just like everyone else that's why God goes through the book of Proverbs and says these children, they need discipline, you have to discipline set them on the right road, train them to do what is right and, and so this, this sin is there but this guilt, it's two prongs, guilt is two prongs one, you feel guilty, you feel like oh, I, I did wrong and you knew you are going to do wrong and you did wrong and now you feel bad for the doing wrong and it's terrible to carry that guilt But then there is also a judicial form of this where you are guilty before God. You are in the penalty box and you are deserving of God's wrath. Just like I am, everyone is. Everyone is deserving of God's wrath. And so that's guilt. And when the first couple sinned, they became guilty. They felt like, we've done wrong. And that's why they covered themselves with the fig leaves. But remember, God requires a payment for this sin. And as I told you, blood, and animal, blood from animals is not sufficient to wipe away the guilt that we have because of sin. It can't do that. So then there's this sacrifice. The payment that God always requires is a perfect sacrifice. And I just explained, we are all fallen. Every single one of us is fallen. And God wants not only the sacrifice to be perfect, but he wants the presenter to be perfect. If you have sinned against someone, just like the scripture says, we're to go to them and we're to reconcile, we're to correct it and vice versa. If we know that somebody has something against us, that we have sinned against them, we're to go to them, we're to correct it. In God's case, God, the father, he wants the sacrifice perfect and he wants the person perfect and it has to be a person that does it. It can't be the animal that goes before God. It can't be any other creature. It can't be an angel. Because they do not meet God's standard for offering the sacrifice. Now since all of creation was at the time corrupted by Adam and Eve, the animals and everything that exists in our universe has been corrupted. Everything is now imperfect. That's why the universe is slowly winding down. That's why we're going from order to disorder. That's why we grow up, grow old, and we die. So what in this universe could be offered in sacrifice that God would accept for payment for our sin? The answer is nothing. There is nothing in this universe that anyone could bring that God would accept for payment for sin the only thing that would work would be for God himself to be the sacrifice and become human because God is perfect. Now, this is why the sacrifice had to be God himself. Now, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, he became a man. Now, God is spirit and must be worshiped in spirit and truth. When we get to heaven... We're not going to see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all sitting on thrones. We're not going to see that. We're going to see Jesus Christ. Now, will we understand that God the Father is there and the Holy Spirit is there? Yes, we will understand that. But in past times, especially during the Middle Ages, they would carve little carvings of what the Trinity looked like. And you had the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all sitting together on a throne. I don't believe Scripture teaches that. We'll see Jesus Christ. We'll know that the Father is there. We'll know that the Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And so we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, at just the right time when we were still powerless, in other words, there was no sacrifice that could forgive us our sins, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it is recognized in Scripture, we were powerless. No one could have their sin forgiven. It was an impossibility. And then just at the right time, God said, Jesus, you're going to be born. And he was inside Mary. Mary gave birth to him, and he became the Savior of the world. Now, Jesus had the punishment for all of our sins placed upon him, but since he was a perfect sacrifice and he had no guilt of his own, he was not in a guilty standing before the Father, he was not worthy of judgment. So he could offer the sacrifice, which was his own blood, which was perfect, and he as the presenter was perfect as well, then God could say, I accept this sacrifice for sin. Now, again, this is the theology of it. This is how God set it all up. Now, the price that had to be paid was the blood of Jesus. But it is sometimes called, especially, I think the King James says, it's a ransom. Now, a ransom, when we hear the word ransom, to us, it means there's an evil person holding somebody hostage. And unless we pay that ransom, they're going to kill him. God is not evil. God is saying, no, because of my justice, this is the price that has to be paid. And God, who is just, said there's one way to solve it, only one way, and he gave his son for this particular purpose. Now, there's another theological term for this. Since he was perfect and offered the perfect sacrifice, he died in our place for us. We would have to die not only the first death, which is physical, but the second death, the second death would place us in hell. The act of him doing this is called the vicarious death. He stands in our place and he takes the punishment. Do you guys remember, and I remember this in junior high, the tale of two cities? If you've never seen the tale of two cities, maybe you'll remember this phrase. I'm going to try to recall it from memory. It is a far, far better thing that I do now than I have ever done. And what happened was, it was during the French Revolution, an aristocrat was going to go to the guillotine. And his friend, who was wealthy but not an aristocrat, got him out of prison, took his place, and went to the guillotine because he loved the woman that the aristocrat had. It was his girlfriend. But he loved that woman. And so he sacrificed himself for the woman And for the aristocrat. And had his own head lopped off. There's no greater love than this. Than a man laying down his life for his friend. And I I watched it in black and white. In junior high. And it's a good story. But that's what Jesus did for us. And then. With prior to Jesus doing that. The wrath of God was on us. So how do you. Make an appeal to God the Father. Saying please take away your wrath. Please remove the penalty of sin forever being separated from God. How do you do that? Well, there's a theological word for this. It's called propitiation. It's an appeasement, and Jesus's blood was given as an appeasement for us, and God was satisfied with the perfect sacrifice. So that's how it's all set up in scripture. Just to review, there was sin, God is just, there must be a payment for that sin, a penalty for it, God's wrath is coming but it can be appeased by a perfect sacrifice from a perfect person. There was only one, and that was Jesus Christ because everything else was fallen. But then, you know, I go through this and I have a a second question. My second question is, why crucifixion? Couldn't it have been something else? Couldn't it have been, like, through stoning or through hanging or even, you know, if, if his throat was cut. Why couldn't you do something like that? And I started going back and forth and I read up a little bit what theologians thought. And well, first hanging and stoning wouldn't do because blood had to be shed. The life had to be poured out of the body. So that act according to scripture has to take place. And for the theologians who are out there, the They say they wanted to show the enormity or God wanted to show the enormity of our sin and the punishment had to match the sin. How great is our sin collectively in the world? It's so big we can't even imagine. So what is the worst kind of death somebody could suffer? And how would they suffer in a maximal event, a maximum event? Just the worst possible case. And this idea of an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. I'm going to read it to you here. Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 through 25. It says, If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. For tooth, hand for hand, foot for fern, foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. What this is saying is like if you cause somebody 's eye to be plucked out they 're not going to come up to you and pluck your eye out as well it 's saying the punishment must match the offense, and so what kind of punishment could be laid on Jesus that would maximize or be equal to the offense of the sin of the whole world? I don't know of anything greater, anything worse, anything filled with more suffering than crucifixion. And that's what the theologians say, that is the reason. I, now, I would like to think that maybe there was some other way that he could have died without so much suffering. Just in my mind, you know, I'm going through this. And that could be true, but I, after reading Scripture, I don't think it is. In Luke chapter 22, verse 42... It says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Jesus is saying to the Father, if there is a possibility of any other way that this can be accomplished, please, can we go that way? And he ends up saying, Father, your will be done. This is also repeated in Matthew chapter 26, verse 42. All I know is at the end of this, God is perfect. And he only has to do things once. He doesn't have to do a redo. He doesn't have to take second best. And so with everything else that I know about him in the Bible, it was the only way that this could happen. It's kind of like when you think about the billions of people that had existed and God wanted to create a people for himself, a people that had a free will, a people that would worship him willingly How do you do that without creating the world the way it was? There is no other way, even though billions of people will be lost. God said, I still want a people that I can love, and I will give everybody the opportunity to be loved. All they have to do is receive it, unlike the people that I told you about in the book of Jeremiah. They refused. They said, no, we're not going to do it. And God says, okay, but I'll take all who want to come. So this is why... Jesus went to the cross. Now this is also proven through the Old Testament that Jesus would rise from the dead. Remember because Jesus was perfect. There was nothing that was holding him down. Death could not keep its chain or its hold on him because that's the penalty for sin and he had no sin in him. In verse 25 of Acts chapter 2 it says David said about him I saw the Lord before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your holy one see decay and this is referring to jesus you have made known to me the paths of life, life and you will fill me with joy in your presence he is quoting here psalm chapter 16 verses 8 through 11 so we already know from the old testament and the jews would have known this too that if he was the sacrifice he would be <clears throat> rising from the dead his body would not see decay Verse 29. Brothers, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to the grave nor did his body see decay. God was, or God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all his witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Remember the context. He's speaking to the crowd. The Holy Spirit baptized the disciples. They came out. They spoke in tongues. Everybody's gathering around going, what is going on here? And Peter says, listen. He gets their attention. Listen. And so they all quieted down. And he told them, you are guilty. You are guilty in standing. And because of that, they felt emotionally. And the phrase that we'll get to here is cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. What, what is this idea of being cut to the heart? Well, it's a verb that implies swiftness of motion and to hurt emotionally. So the people, when they heard this, They knew that they were guilty. They were cut to the heart. And he was called Lord and Christ. Now, Lord is Kyrios in the Greek. And it means the possessor or deposer of a thing, the owner Uh, in the state. It's the sovereign. It's the prince. It's the chief. It's the Roman emperor. That's who Jesus is. He is the one that is Lord over all. He's ruler over all. And he's also called the Christ lord and christ christ is the anointed one the sacrifice the one who intercedes in the jewish language hebrew language it's messiah or mashiach is what he's called in hebrew he is the one that has been anointed to be the sacrifice and because of this he is lord over all and so the people were cut to the heart and then P- and then peter gives a remedy what is the remedy in verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. People misinterpret this particular passage because they believe you have to repent and be baptized in order to be saved. There's a problem here with the preposition for. If you look at that, I'm going to read it again. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. The way I can describe it in English is you would say, take two aspirin for a headache. You get that? Because you have the headache, you take the aspirin. You would never say, take two aspirin in order to get your headache. Right? And so that's what's being talked about here. There's a better way to translate for... But repent and be baptized because of the forgiveness of sins. That's what it's talking about. Or for the purposes of having your sins forgiven. This is going to be the result. Uh, It could be translated for, could be translated as because of, or in view of, or for the purpose of. So the people who say you have to be baptized in order to be saved, mistranslate this particular verse. Uh, I think it's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. It's not the removal of dirt from the body that saves you, but it's a pledge of a good conscience towards God. He's saying it's not the dipping in water that saves you. That would be a work. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says we're not saved by works. So if you think you're being saved by dipping in water, that's a work. You're doing something and that goes against scripture. So what is repentance? Repentance in Old Testament terms, and they use it different ways. It means to pant or to sigh or to turn or to return. In the New Testament, it means to care, to change your mind, to turn over, to turn unto. It could also be translated to turn around. You're going to hell, you're under the wrath of God and you say, mm, not going that way. And you turn around 180 degrees in the opposite direction. If you were in unbelief, you start to believe. Now <clears throat> I'm going to give you, I'm going to wrap this up here. There's a psychological element to this. There's the intellectual, emotional, and volitional. Now I'm going to break that down for you. The intellectual element is the mind. The mind says, and this is repentance. Repentance. The mind says, I know I can be forgiven. I understand it. I comprehend. I apprehend the truth. I put it right here. I know it. That's the mind. Then there's the emotional element, the heart. I want to be saved. I desire to be saved. Everything within, you know, it's just tough for me and I'm... I have this godly sorrow. I I want to turn to God and have him forgive me. So there's the mind, there's the heart, and then there's the will. The will, all three of these things have to work together. The will says, I will submit. Willingly, I lay down. Nobody has to force me. There's no jackboot on my neck making me confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. These three work together. That's what repentance is. If you have done these three things, you are saved. If your mind says, I know I can be saved, my heart says, I want to be saved, and your will says, I will bow to Jesus Christ, and he will save me. That's what you want. That's what salvation is all about. And if you want to explain that to somebody, you can put it in these terms. Do you believe you're a sinner? If they say, yes, I believe I'm a sinner, but you have to be able to explain sin to them, a violation of God's moral law, you have violated that. And even if you haven't committed, quote unquote, a sin, the sin nature is still there. You still wish to do evil, so you explain that to them. You say, do you recognize that there is a sin? Yes. Do you want to live forever? Do you want to go to heaven? If they say, yes, I want to go to heaven, then you must willingly say this prayer and ask Jesus to save you from your sins. You know the verses, Romans ten nine and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And it says in verse 13 of chapter 10 in Romans, for all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what's required. If somebody is in the church and then they fall away, one of those three things was not in play. The mind, the heart, or the will. They... Really, we're not full of this will to submit, maybe. They just did it because everybody else was doing it. But they really didn't want to submit. They just wanted to live their own life and not be ruled by Jesus Christ. And their heart was kind of, I don't know, maybe, it sounds good. My friends are there, so I'm going to go there. That's all right. And the mind, well, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced of the proper theology. You know, Jesus was a good teacher. I don't know that he was God, that he was Messiah. One of those three things is usually lacking or multiples, are lacking, So for all of us who have done this, we understand the theology, why it had to be Jesus. But we also understand we play a part in that. And we have to ask him to forgive us our sins. Once that happens, we're still going to die physically unless the rapture takes place. That's going to happen. We're going to suffer through it. Some people fear death. I guess the one thing to fear is the pain of death. Who hasn't said... I just want to go in my sleep or I want to go quickly. You know, I don't want it to be drawn out long and prolonged illness. Can I just go right away? And everybody wants that, right? But because of the sin that we committed and the laws of decay that have been installed, we don't get that option. Some people do. Some people don't. But the end result is heaven forever. Forever. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more evil thoughts, not even the inclination to do that which is wrong. It does not even show up in your brain cells that you have when you are glorified. That's what we get to look forward to. And we can have as much cake as we want and not worry about how it's going to affect us. And, and that's the goal. God is going to take care of every need that we have. And of course, you know, we have the millennium to go through and the tribulation that is still in front of us. That, that's all going to work out, but God's going to use us then. So my encouragement to you is, if you don't know that you are saved, make sure your mind, your heart, and your will are all for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how you have spelled this out in the pages how we must be saved why we must be saved what is our current state and what awaits us you are so good you are so just you are so loving, kind, forgiving may we lift up your name here on this earth not only today but for as long as we live and give us so many opportunities to share this with those who are perishing we'll wait for you to do it Lord In Jesus' name of the church said, please stand.